0: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa and welcome to the Mindful Muslim podcast by Inspirited Minds where we discuss islam mental health spirituality and psychology my name is minha and i'm your podcast host for today i have been joined by dr sarah betteridge who has an amazing amount of experiences working within uh, the mental health field within clinical services within nhs and she was also a muslim chaplain for a period of time today we have discussed so much stuff like amazing stuff, mashallah. Um, we've spoken about her thesis, where she uh, did research on incorporating religion um, with therapy. Uh, we've spoken about the age gap and generational differences when understanding Islam and mental health, uh, you know, from social policy to uh, talking about jinn possession um, to being a Muslim professional in the mental health field and how to navigate awkward conversations and, and so much more. This one has truly been such a beneficial. And insightful one, mashallah. I have benefited massively, and I pray so much that you guys also benefit from it. Before we go on to the main chunk of the podcast, we have a couple of favors to ask from you. Please do not forget to leave us a review. It's really, really important for us to know how we're doing and if you're finding if you're finding these podcasts beneficial, if you're enjoying them, and also we want to get feedback from you guys in terms of what you want more of and uh, what we could improve on, even if you want to suggest guests, even if you want to be a guest on our podcast, please get in touch by emailing info at inspiritedminds.org.uk. We'd love to hear from you. If you haven't followed us on on our socials, we're on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook, obviously. Please do give us a like and follow. Um, And our podcast can be found on all uh, major streaming uh, platforms. uh, We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts um itunes soundcloud um, we're on it all basically um finally we're also on patreon it's really really important that um we get the funds that we need in order to carry on um inshallah if you guys want to see more and if you guys can spare a couple of pounds it would be really 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 appreciated inshallah um, so please do go check it out and, and and give whatever you can so that we can continue uh, and be a sustainable resource for our community inshallah and if you can't then please 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 do keep us in your du'as inshallah and i hope and pray that you find this beneficial Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sarah Betteridge. Khail for for joining us, especially in these circumstances. Um, so, how well, how are you salam. doing today?
1: Welcome, salaam. Alhamdulillah, uh, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. Good. Busy day, but alhamdulillah.
0: Good, alhamdulillah. Um, so, for our um, viewers and our audience, um, would you like to just um, introduce yourself, tell us a bit about uh, your background, um, and you know what brought you um, to do what you're doing? Uh, I guess.
1: Sure. Um, So I'm a psychologist. Um, I've been working in adult learning disability and mental health services for just over 20 years now. Um, I started in roles like support worker roles and nursing assistant roles in hospitals and um, care homes. And then I did my psychology degree and um, managed to get a post as an assistant psychologist. And then Alhamdulillah managed to get onto training. So Um, I've worked for a long time in in many different roles um, in mental health services. Um, Yeah, sort of working in in hospitals, residential homes, community settings, private settings. Um, And then I worked as a Muslim chaplain for five years um, in the acute um, mental health trust that I was working in. Um, And now currently at the moment, I am working as a family therapist on an adult eating disorder ward. Um, and um, I do a lot of supervision work. I supervise staff um, working in various settings. Um, and I'm also working in the BME Access Service in Tower Hamlets um, as, a, as a senior specialist psychologist there, working with the local Muslim communities in Tower Hamlets. Thank you
0: great mashallah um so i know that before this uh before we we had this podcast we um discussed a lot about your previous experience and there was one thing i sort of um remembered was that you you felt um working part-time with adults that had mental health issues gave you more experience than than your than your degree um i was just wondering if you could elaborate on that because i think um nowadays, where there's so much uh, emphasis put on academia, which is great, um, but also life experiences, I think is a, is a really big thing, especially in the mental health field. So it'd be great to hear um, why why you thought that or, you know, how you felt it contributed to, to where you are today. I
1: think, um, I think there's kind of, I guess, if you want to follow an academic path and do a doctorate and things, obviously, you've, you've got to do the academia side of things. But um, in terms of Getting an assistant psychologist post, which is the, the job that you need to get after you've done a psychology degree um, to try and get some experience working in the field in order to be accepted onto a, a clinical um, or counseling doctoral training. It's incredibly competitive. So if you can imagine the hundreds of people that are doing psychology degrees um, I mean, it's been known, I've been in services where we've advertised an assistant psychologist post and had to close it the following day or a couple of days after, because we've just had like 50 applicants or 100 applicants, so it's really, really, really competitive. Um, and I was fortunate enough to um, be working in, a. I was working in, a. after my degree, I was working in a care home as a, as a deputy manager at a small um, private care home for adults with learning disabilities. And the owner of those homes was a speech and language therapist in the local community learning disability team and so when an assistant psychologist post came up in that team she told me she said oh she knew i'd done a psychology degree she said there's an assistant psychologist post why don't you apply um and i did and the 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 only thing that got me that job because there was lots of other applicants and lots of other um you know people with psychology degrees was the amount of work experience that i'd had Working in in that field of learning disabilities, and so since the age of seventeen, I've been working part time in in care homes and uh learning disabilities and adult uh, mental health as well. And so it was that that kind of gave me the edge um, and and made me successful in that post was because they knew that I'd worked with this client group. I knew what it was all about. I could manage some of the challenges, um, and and had some hands on knowledge of what you know what it would be like
0: i think I think that's um yeah, I think that's really really great great to hear I think especially um in our community uh, as well as I'm sure you're aware there's a stigma already of working within the mental health field um so I can imagine for some people it can be quite difficult to gain experience um in that field and if anybody is listening and wants to pursue a career in psychology and mental health, you know we we have a, an excellent example here of exactly why you should should pursue it, inshallah. Um,
1: I guess yeah. that that's, that's interesting to me, actually, because I forget that a lot, because actually I come from a cultural background in which it isn't weird to work in mental health services. Oh, so, great. Yeah, well, my, so my parents are Mauritian, and there were many Mauritians in the kind of 60s and 70s and 80s that um, came over to train as nurses in the UK. Um, so both my parents are mental health nurses. Um, and most of our kind of friends and, and um, you know social kind of network at the time were all mental health nurses. So I grew up in that environment. So when I started working at 17, it was in the care home that my dad was working in. Um, and, and so it, it was part of our family culture. And it was only when I would go and visit family in France, for example, where nobody works in mental health services, and that wasn't how they got to France, that I realized how weird it was. <laughs> that we're all working bedrooms—it's fun a lot. so um yeah i forget that i forget that um it's it's not something that people would naturally do but it's got so much baraka in it i mean i can't tell you how much baraka there is in in caring for people um for sure. even though even being paid to do it there's there's still because you you know you 100%. still need to have patience you still need to have compassion you still need to have mercy and kindness and uh that brings a lot of baraka with, with it
0: yeah yeah, of course. And actually, one of the things that um, in spiritual minds ha- have uh, one of the things that we sort of base our whole entire work on is the hadith where Allah tells us. Um, you know he'll provide us uh, ease on the day of qiyamah if we provide ease for another um believer in times of distress in this dunya yeah. um and i think you know regardless of whether you're working in a in a muslim or non-muslim community or you know whether you're getting paid for it or not i think yeah absolutely the barakah is absolutely still there um but you're actually one of the first people like muslim women i've ever met that has said um, that it's not weird, like it's not a, like a taboo in your that. in your family, and to know <laughs> that your parents, as first gen, um, are actually working in mental health, like that's absolutely incredible to me like even to this day my parents are like oh she's a brain doctor like what does that mean
1: yeah it's definitely a Mauritian thing
0: (laughs) so there was a a lot of Mauritians and Filipinos
1: and uh, Jamaicans and and Africans that came that England brought over really to work in in their their mental health and learning disability services that's
0: I actually never knew that you know mashallah Mm. that's that's great I'll keep an eye out next time I meet somebody that's from any of those countries. If they're from
1: Mauritius, they're highly likely (laughs) to have someone working in mental health.
0: That's great. That's such an amazing (laughs) legacy to to carry on as well, you know, mashallah. That's that's great. Um, So one of the things that I'm really interested in, and I'm sure the rest of our viewers would be super interested in as well, is, that you did um a thesis on incorporating religion into into therapy. I'd be really interested to hear you expand on that and why you chose this uh, particular particular topic because I guess for me, if I was to do it, it'd be because there's so much stigma and to be around it. Mm. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, you know what was the motivation for you and what was the like I guess the most profound thing that came out of your studies.
1: I think for me, there were two main motivators. One is that um, I didn't grow up in a particularly uh, um, religious or spiritual household. We we're a Muslim household, but not very practicing. And I started my journey with Islam in my kind of mid to late 20s. And that kind of coincided with, with um, getting onto the doctorate training. So my doctorate training was very, very uh, linked with my spiritual development and my spiritual life. Um, which was great because you know it was there right from the start and i was always thinking you know with all the theories we were learning and with all the stuff that we were doing i was constantly thinking how does this fit in with islam how does this fit in with me being a muslim psychologist do i agree with this do i not does this fit with islam or not And, and i didn't know a huge amount about islam at that point so i i was going a lot on my gut really of do i think this might fit with islam um so there was a motivation for me to do a thesis that would help me with that journey how do i once i qualify how do i practice in a way that is going to be religiously okay and and that allah is going to be okay with and that i'm not going to be doing stuff with people that's going to make him not happy or um not jeopardize but but do do something that um is not islamic in some way and i don't mean big things i mean subtle things you know like you know methods of certain types of therapies or you know is i wanted to know would that be doing something that actually islam says do the opposite to or you know i really kind of wanted to start to get to the nitty-gritty of um what is okay and not okay from from a psychotherapy perspective in terms of Islam, because there are lots of different types of therapies and there's lots of different ways of doing therapy um, and lots of different theories um, that those ways come from. Um, And and obviously what I discovered quite quickly was that a lot of the therapies, their initial development was very secular and, and on purpose, very secular. You know, the people that were developing these theories and these models wanted to develop it away from religion. They didn't want it to be associated with religion. But I knew from experience that uh, some of these methods were really good and were really helpful and were really helping people. So I wanted to try and understand that a bit better and and, um, yeah, just just figure that out. So I knew that I I wanted to do something along those lines for my doctorate. Uh, The second motivator was that my first placement as a trainee psychologist was in an older adult. Mental health setting. So that's people over the age of 65, and that generation of people still now are religious people. So although we live in a secular world in England, you know, mainly um, the over 65s are still pretty religious. They, they come from Christian roots and they grew up with Christianity. I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s and and it was I went to Christian schools and that was still normal back then for it to be that way. So. So for people over 65, you know, religion was a big part of their childhood and their lives. So they are very much more openly spiritual and religious than than the younger population in the UK. So it was the first time really that I was seeing clients who were bringing religion to therapy, to their therapy sessions. And I had one particular client, a man who had been a devout Christian his entire life, Um, and it was a huge part of his life. Um, And it gave him a lot of meaning and a lot of um, purpose in life and and a sense of what this world was all about. And he had suffered a stroke and from that stroke had lost the use of his legs. So he was now wheelchair bound. And he up until that point, he um, was he was the person in the church who looked after the church so you know anything practical that needed fixing in the church or anything that needed doing he would be the person to do it and that was his role that was what gave him meaning in life and purpose in life and so becoming wheelchair bound he lost that role and and it really affected him really badly so i i was he was referred for therapy to deal with depression but after a few sessions of talking to him what i realized was he was losing his faith he'd lost his faith he was he was saying, like, how could God do this to me? I've dedicated my entire life to him. Uh, why would he make me lose my legs so that I can't work in the church anymore? And he was that was what he was struggling with. That was what was making him depressed. Obviously, losing the use of his legs was making him depressed. But, you know, this connection with God was what was really painful to him. And. Um, it didn't matter how much CBT I tried to do with him, and 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 there is a lot of research now on trying to do CBT with the older adult population, and I, I think I believe it's changed a lot since when I was doing it back then. But he wasn't interested in that. He was just interested in talking to me about faith and religion and what had happened. and and in our sessions, you know, I discovered that I actually he'd had a really difficult childhood, and his mum, had had uh, mental breakdowns and was in hospital a lot and his dad was an alcoholic and so he'd been adopted by his uncle um, who was very kind to him but his aunt wasn't very kind to him and she wasn't really very happy with the whole situation and his cousins were treated differently to him and things. And so he left home very young and and at the age of 19 found Christianity Um, and you know that had been his life that had been his saviour really that had, you know, come from a difficult background and he'd found this faith. And I just kept thinking, there is no point in me doing CBT on depression without incorporating this in some way. And I had no idea as a, as a first year trainee of how to do that, or even if I was allowed to do that, you know, I had a good supervisor who was who was not particularly she wasn't particularly bothered about whether i was doing the cbt right or not but she also wasn't a particularly spiritual person so you know although i felt i had some freedom in the sessions to talk about religion which we did we did a lot of i didn't know how to incorporate it into the cbt or how to how to do a therapy from that really so so that was sort of the the birth of of the thesis was you know how do muslim psychologists who are already trained they identify as muslims how do they work when their clients bring a huge amount of religious content to the sessions what from whatever faith how do they work with that i wanted to know like you know what were people doing um, in that yeah in that that's
0: way. such a um you know such a uh like an incredible uh, backstory to where it all began mashallah and I think two things stood out for me um, the most um, was that when you were saying what this Christian man was saying to you is, is if not identical very very similar to what a lot of Muslims would say actually is like why has Allah done this to me, or why has Allah? Like I believe in His Qadr, but His Qadr has, you know, caused me to be like this, and etc. And I think, um, I, I think a lot of what so the early research that spiritual Minds found was that um a lot of Muslims didn't seek help because they didn't feel like they would be understood by somebody um, who wasn't didn't understand their culture or or their faith. Um, and, and i don't think that this is an exclusive muslim problem i think it's no. for people like of all faiths and, mm. and, and religion um which is why as a charity we we you know we don't um exclude other faiths but also i think i, I think as a muslim um we as an already like targeted um you know, community and the news and the media and stuff, I think automatically we start to see ourselves as us and them. Whereas mm. in reality, we're pretty much, you know, aside from the obvious, we're pretty much all in the same boat in terms of our mental health and our face. So I thought that was really, really interesting to know that actually these issues were common when, you know, you were training, what, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and another thing was that you said about the older generation about how you know they're still quite um religious and i find like that's the same for our communities as well as like our generation sorry the older generation um are still very very religious um and inshallah you know our generation will also be but it's the um i i find like there's a there's there's like differences of how we perceive. So for a lot of Asian communities, for example, and I know this is quite common in a lot of Arab and African communities as well, is that the older generation just sort of um, ignore that mental health exists because mm. um, it doesn't connect with their faith. Mm. Whereas our generation is more like, no, it does, it goes mm. hand in hand, which is why we need to have this conversation.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so, you know, with, with that in mind, um, what are your what are your thoughts on this is i think disparity is the right word between faith and mental health and maybe touching upon something to do with with the age changes i know you said that you're a family therapist so i imagine that all of this must come together somehow in when you're when you're in that in that um context if that question made sense
1: <laughs> yeah i think so <laughs> um i think for me the difference talking about muslim uh, communities the difference in the generations to me is is a, is one around language and language of the quran and language of islam and, and 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 the arabic language and our older generations never learnt the meaning of of the quran they learnt how to read the quran which is very blessed and alhamdulillah you know there's a lot of blessing and healing and shifa in in reading the words of the quran in arabic um but unfortunately they they didn't grow up with the knowledge of of what those words really really mean and you know subhanallah we're blessed we're in it we're in a time where uh, we have access to so much information at, at, at our fingertips including very in-depth detailed knowledge of the quran and the sunnah and the hadith and i think this is going to be a game changer i think for the next few generations of Muslims that grow up with this information, we're going to be a different Ummah inshallah. We're going to be a much more knowledgeable Ummah. And um, I think. What we have found and what we will continue to find is that your mental health is intrinsically part of your Islamic health. They are one and the same thing. You're a human being. You have emotions, thoughts, feelings, experiences, traumas, desires diseases all all of those things and they're all part of yourself they're all part of your um qal, your nafs, your a um and and that's all part of what allah teaches us about in the quran and the hadith and the sunnah so they're not inseparable they're like you say they're, they're the same things and i just think it's been lost in translation with earlier generations i think the the arabs knew that and they could understand that and the sahaba and the companions after and But then there was a big gap where Islam spread across the world um, without its meaning, a lot of its meanings got lost. And those cultures that it went to retained many of their cultural practices whilst becoming Muslim and believing in one God and the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. But they retained a lot of their cultural practices. And we're very blessed to be in an era where we're watching that change. And that's very painful for for a lot of families and, and is causing a lot of conflict between generations, but it's a blessing.
0: I think it's um I think it's the first time I've ever heard someone describe it as a blessing, but it's all about pers- perspective. I think you know, with listening to you describe it, I, I can see why why it genuinely is a, is a blessing in disguise. I think it's the, I think you know, uh, I mean, for all our viewers, when this gets released, we're actually recording this in lockdown, um, and you know, I think there's so much everyone that i've been speaking to as well has been saying how they're having so much conversations with their family that they usually wouldn't and lockdown has you know surfaced a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings um that obviously wouldn't come about in normal situations and actually they're having that i know personally for myself i've had like the most random conversations with my dad that i would have never had in (laughs) a million years you know he was talking about how he feels really restless like, this is a man who's worked since the age of 10, you know, back to back and all of a sudden he's not working. And, you know, I genuinely believe that he, he experienced grief and like, mm-hmm. you know, he was like, I've lost my livelihood, and I was having this conversation with him about how, you know, you've been running on adrenaline your entire life, and now all of a sudden that's been taken away. Mm. It's natural to feel feel like this, and you know, I would have never had that conversation with him was yeah. it not for for lockdown. So, you know, I mean, going back to your original point, I think it absolutely is a blessing in disguise, and I'm I'm genuinely praying and hoping that a lot of people are taking this opportunity to have those discussions. But actually. I think those blessings that are disguised is having those open conversations now is the time to actually um, return the favour to our parents who taught us and brought us back um, to educate them now like it's Mm. our responsibility to to return the favour but actually going back to my original original question (laughs) that I asked you um, was going back to your studies and your thesis you told us like the backstory and the behind the scenes of it Um, but I'm really interested to know, I know it's obviously very difficult to summarise your thesis, mashallah. But oh, the findings. Was, yeah. yeah to so what it. was like your most <laughs> profound thing that you, you found from from your research and your studies? I I
1: guess I was hoping to find the answer. I was hoping to find the model of therapy that would be the best one to use with Muslim clients. And I didn't find that. Um, What I found was, Something that fits with with data or research on successful outcomes of therapy, which is that obviously the therapeutic relationship is one of the most important parts of successful therapy. And the second thing is how much the therapist is uh, passionate about the model that they use. So what they found in research before is that it doesn't matter what model the therapist is using, as long as they believe in it and they're passionate about it, the more that they believe in it and are passionate about it, the more likely it is to be successful. And that's what I found in my data was that I interviewed Muslim psychologists that were using all sorts of different types of therapies. Um, and they were all using those therapies because there was something about those therapies that they liked. As an individual person and as as an individual psychologist they were using therapies that spoke to them in some way and therefore they were making that fit with an islamic framework in some way or or, you know tweaking it or leaving bits that they felt didn't quite fit from a religious perspective but using the other bits um and i guess that was the biggest finding was that you can use anything as long as you're thinking about these things and you're thinking about and having those conversations with your client about whether this fits or not or you know what might Allah think about this or Islam say about this um, then then you, you can use whatever you want <laughs> which was slightly disappointing uh, but also quite freeing as well
0: yeah absolutely um, I, I was uh, speaking with a friend not too long ago and I was saying how you know if you if you if you have the intention to find something within the quran and you search for it you'll find it you know if Mm. you if you want to find hope you'll find hope in the quran if you want to find healing if you want to find mercy if you want to find forgiveness if you want to find awareness of the grave or the sunnah whatever it is you'll find it in in the quran Mm. Mm. um so i think you know we can find the the bounties and you know uh, and there's a lot of ahadith and a lot of uh you know um quotes of scholars who have said actually the differences that allah has bestowed upon this dunya is a mercy in yeah. in order for us to be able to live amongst each other and i think it's and i'm so glad you know deep like loki i was expecting you to say like yep yeah, i found it like this is the solution <laughs> this is this is the model um but you know alhamdulillah i think um i think that there is a there's a great mercy in being able to apply our fitra, our deen, to everything that's out there, because essentially, um, you know, within its correct boundaries, I think anything can be can be turned into into good and anything yeah. can be applied to Islam, because it is so holistic, like mm. what is it that Islam hasn't spoken about? And, you mm. know, there's a misconception that Islam doesn't acknowledge mental health, but like you've said so yourself, like you can find it anywhere and everywhere. Opposite.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that is the greater jihad, that's what we're all here
0: for. Yeah. Yeah. So in I know that you said you've, you obviously dealt with the old generation who um, are very religious. Have you seen or found um, any benefit in incorporating religion into therapy with maybe a non practicing uh, clientele or non religious clientele? Or have you, you know, incorporate bits of it? Or is there any kind of correlation? Like, is is it like a, you can apply it to any one kind of approach?
1: no here's the short answer to that question it's not something that i've done and i think there are sort of two parts to that question really one is that i work in a very dialogical way in a very kind of client-centered way so so everything i do with clients is in conversation with them and so even when i work with muslim clients we will have a conversation and maybe many conversations in the therapy process of do you want us to go down the islamic route do you want us to to bring islam into the session do you want us to think about islam in these sessions and for some clients that's a no and i'm i'm okay with that that we you know we'll we'll do that work um and for some clients it's a yes and then we we try and do that we try and think about that we try and incorporate those things um i have developed a a course a 12-week course on on the self the islamic concept of the self um that incorporates things like attachment theory and CBT and mindfulness. And so and that's done with Muslim clients. And so that's a very you know that's a very kind of open, concrete way in which I am actively incorporating the the, the faith into kind of therapeutic approaches. Um, because because actually we're coming from a faith first perspective with that. You know, that's about learning about the self from an Islamic concept and then thinking about how some of these Western models fit quite nicely or can help us with that, you know, develop that understanding. Um, And and I think I think doing doing faith-based stuff with with non-Muslims or non-religious clients, I don't think we're at that point yet. I don't think we've developed an Islamic model per se that is enough to to do that. I think it's really interesting because it depends what you mean. You know, there are lots of things that we do that could be seen as an islamic you know things like mindfulness things like uh, cbt you know they actually fit quite well with learning about your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors and um, being mindful and reflective and you know you can find all of these concepts in islam so it's a bit chicken and egg sometimes it's a bit like well we are doing so we're not calling it islamic you know because we haven't necessarily yeah. got it from that source but it it still is from that source and i think you know, as I've kind of been practicing longer and longer, I'm now at a point now, you know, we definitely need more people who are trained in both fields properly. So who are are trained psychologists and who are trained scholars. We we need both because just having one or the other, for me personally, isn't quite enough. And, you know, I'm getting to the point now as a psychologist where I feel quite confident with psychological theories, many different types of psychological theories. But I don't feel confident enough in the Islamic side and I want to go and get more training because actually I do feel like I want to come at it from an Islamic perspective first and then bring in you know other things that I've found helpful rather than the other way around of you know starting from the psychological theory perspective and then bringing bits of Islam in I'm not saying it's wrong but that's where I've got to in my journey is now wanting to come more from an Islamic perspective first
0: yeah for sure and I think I think that's been an ongoing conversation in the Muslim mental health sphere is how yeah. do we go about this or you know a lot of people are like well we have the the secular or the Western theories let's just you know make a sandwich with Islam either side yeah. um, and other people says that we all this stuff that the, West, that the West has come up with is already in our religion so we don't need to label it we just need to call people to, to Islam you know and you know I think both have dangers and both have pros yes. as well exactly. um, but I'd be interested in hearing what you think is missing like I know you said we need you know trained uh professionals in both uh, Islam and, and psychology but from either model like what do you think is missing how do you how do you envision it to be gelled in the future what would you like to to see as a professional
1: I mean you know you said something there of like we just need to call people to Islam we don't need to bracket it you know someone's got psychosis or bipolar, calling them to Islam is not going to fix the psychosis or the bipolar or the severe depression. We might know as Muslims that there is the potential to. Um, but actually, it needs a lot more than just dawah and just telling people to pray five times a day a lot more than that. You know, if somebody has is, is experiencing severe mental health symptoms then they are in severe distress and they've had something severe happen to them and that's going to need working through sure you can use islam to work through that but you still need to work through that Uh, so just calling people to islam just saying pray five times a day and read the quran is not going to fix the trauma that they're in by itself um and vice versa you know you can fix someone you can you can cure someone's addiction with therapy you can cure depression or anxiety with therapy um, but if that person doesn't believe in god there will always be a gap there will always be a hole there'll always be a void um, there'll always be a part of themselves their souls and their spiritual hearts that are not fulfilled but we, we can see that around us you know in the world there are many people who are very contented very peaceful who don't believe in God. Um, so you can reach that state without believing in God, but that's not going to help you in the next life. And and for many people, it will still you'll still there will still be a, a kind of a void. Um, and for, for, for some people, their mental health issues are very directly related to not having that meaning and that purpose in life. What are the what on earth are we here for? Why are we going through all of this stuff? And religion does give you the answers to that. Um, so, so you know, so there are times in which being called to faith will help you with your with your mental health difficulties, but not all the time, because because sometimes they're about other things than that they're about abuse, and they're about trauma and they're about um, um, oppression. So so we need both. We need both. We need the healing and the shifa from the Quran. Uh, and from having faith in one God um, and we need the and the compassion from the religion, but often the religion isn't isn't delivered in that way.
0: Yeah, that and, was I was actually yeah. gonna gonna mention that how you how you said that, you know, just calling someone to pray five times a day and read Quran, etc. isn't enough. Um, And it's not that the act in themselves aren't enough it's the fact that the support often isn't there and it's the fact that the way it's it's delivered and the way the message is given is very much like you know naughty naughty you should be doing this instead of you know how about you try this because it's worked for others it could potentially work for you and if it doesn't keep trying because there's other things out there as well that we could also try a lot it's very black and white
1: Mm. and i'm
0: really glad that you mentioned your last point about how you know um sometimes is is about purpose and meaning but other times is it is uh you know trauma and incident mm. based and mm. i was actually working with this um this uh this woman uh, a couple of years ago actually subhanallah um she was a revert, and um, you know she found islam and her her trauma was was fixed essentially um and then unfortunately she she got she got married and it was it was, it was a really terrible uh, a marriage and actually her her husband at that time used Islam to to oppress her and Mm. and abuse her Mm. and so when when she divorced him she actually you know stopped praying and she stopped wearing hijab because she developed like intense PTSD towards the avan, for example Mm. and things like that um Mm. you know whenever she would see like a bearded man she would often have like full-on panic attacks and Mm. I think it's really important to recognize that for some people actually it's a lot more deep rooted, like it mm. doesn't have anything personally to do with God. It's yes. actually the creation of God that has have caused this, this issue. And um, I think that's something that often a lot of people forget is, you know, they don't want to acknowledge all the ills in our communities, you yes. know? Um, yes. Yes. And, and often, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, Islam is perfect, but Muslims aren't. And yes. we actually have to put substance to those words and put our hands up and say that actually, we're quite terrible people sometimes (laughs) we have to to admit that um I just want to pick up on a a point you you sort of answered this question um one of the questions I had lined up for you was uh you know we know that bipolar um and and psychosis and, and a number of schizophrenic disorders um they you know have genuine biological differences i mean we're all you know biopsychosocial we're just all connected um but people who have more acute or uh, serious mental health illnesses um how what do you feel like their biggest challenge is when it comes to faith and mental health and and, and getting support as muslims um
1: what their biggest challenges? i mean I think their biggest challenge is holding on to the rope of Allah. You know that that when you are really, really suffering in that way and you're not getting the support from the people that you need to be getting support from, it's very hard to hold on to to Allah in those in those circumstances. Um, And as an ummah, we need to be much, much more merciful, much, much more compassionate and much, much more kind to people in those states. Um, I don't believe that the answer is being hospitalized and medicated um, until you're numb and then sent back out again is the answer. I, I don't. Um, I believe the answer is in a much more compassionate community around you. Um, and And also Islam is a very practical religion. You know, you're supposed to tie your camel and then put your trust in Allah and Actually, if you're in an oppressive situation, if you're in an abusive relationship, yes, you should be praying and reading Quran. You also need to be getting out of that
0: situation.
1: You know, Allah doesn't say you have to stay in that
0: situation. In fact, it's the
1: opposite to that.
0: It's Um, the preservation of life, right? Yeah,
1: you know, but unfortunately, we come from cultures which believe that we should just be staying in any situation and putting up with anything and not, not responding. I'm not saying we should get angry, but we are allowed to respond to something that is not fair. Um, and and we, even if that's with our parents, and this is a very controversial thing to say, um, and I'm not advocating, you know, shouting and screaming at your parents, but I am advocating talking to them about difficult things.
0: Yeah, and I and I think actually, um... In the current COVID-19 crisis, um, a lot of us are are, are not stuck but a lot of us are at home, Mm. a lot of us have gone, you know, people who are living alone have actually gone back to their family homes and a lot of people who live with their families have actually been isolated alone and I think that's caused like a lot of turmoil within Mm. within families. like spending a lot of time with with parents can sometimes be really great and also really toxic as well at the same time so I'm really glad that you that you mentioned that actually um, I know a number of sisters have been experiencing like a lot of difficulties because some have been away at uni and have gone back home some you know travel uh, for work and have gone to live back at home and they've been saying you know I can't I don't remember home life ever being like this you know Mm -hmm. Um, so I I, like it brings me to an original point uh, sorry to a point that I mentioned earlier about it's the time to have those conversations Mm -hmm. now and actually If we don't have those conversations, the cycle will just repeat itself and I often have this conversation with my sister and I'm like, do you think we'll turn out to be parents and aunties and uncles like our parents and our aunties <laughs> and uncles, like the very people that we don't want to become, yeah. um, because you know time, time is evolving and time is changing constantly and if we don't have those conversations now, then um, History would just would just repeat itself, right? Um, but I think
1: we've we've lost as a, as an ummah and as, as as kind of Muslim cultures, we have lost the um, ability to have those conversations with with our children. We we've we've never nurtured that type of relationship with our children. I, I'm generalising here, but you know, from from all of my experiences, personal and professional, we don't come from communities which do very well in developing good conversations difficult conversations nurturing conversations emotionally intelligent conversations with our children in fact we do the opposite we totally avoid having any of those sorts of conversations and that will lead to a distant relationship with your children and it will lead to problems in in the relationship with your children Mm. it's all undoable we can undo it but we've lost the art of doing that and and i think many families need help to do that again and that's that's what I do in the family therapy is help people to learn how to have difficult conversations with each other
0: it's really bizarre isn't it subhanAllah how we've retracted or regressed over the years from you know how emotionally intelligent the Prophet Sallallahu yes. was with, with his yes. family, History and you family. know yes. how like yes. em- like just expressive he was with his emotions, and so freely yeah. as well. Like no one thought yeah. no one thought to question his masculinity, no. and no one thought to question his iman. You know, absolutely. Um, and and
1: my, my son's been obsessed with the Prophet stories this Ramadan, and, and something that's hit me from hearing those stories over and over again is is the relationship that they had with their children and the conversations that they would be having with their children and the openness that they had with their children, all of them, subhanAllah, um, even the ones in whose children weren't following the the part, you know, um, but certainly from the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, many, many, many examples of how open he was with his family.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, I think it's a constant reminder of how, how we have it there's there's nothing we haven't been given in Islam you know and what I said Mm -hmm. if you go searching for it you'll find it but you have to do it with sincerity and you have to do it with the conviction that you will find what what you're what you're looking for and uh, you know that that brings me nicely onto my next point about how when a lot of people look for faults or or loopholes within Islam, they'll find it as well, um, you know, or they'll they'll play on words or, or something along those lines, or they'll find a difference of opinion, um, you know, that's often used. Mm, um, mm. But, you know, there's a huge, huge debate within our communities um, as to whether someone actually suffers from a mental health problem or is, is possessed by a jinn or has ayin, mm, you know, mm, how do you, mm. what are your thoughts on this and how do you navigate the, those those conversations?
1: Yeah, I mean, my my default position is the middle path. You know, we believe in Jinn, we believe in black magic, we believe in evil eye. They're not dubious things. They're very, very clear in the Quran that they exist, that we need to protect ourselves from them, that people do them. Um, so they're a reality. They're there. What we're also told about in the Quran and the Hadith is the state of our hearts. and becoming depressed or becoming grieved or becoming anxious you know these things are all spoken about as well so for me they both exist um they both have a place and unfortunately more often than not when things get severe both are probably involved um so you know i believe in a balanced view i believe in in not ruling out one or the other but being open-minded and saying, okay, well, there's a possibility that there could be some black magic or evil eye. What else is going on in your life? Is that, you know, I mean, when I was working as a Muslim chaplain um, in the Mental Health Trust, I I took that job when I was writing up my thesis, because I wanted to get I wanted to be able to see Muslim clients and have no restrictions or boundaries um, in terms of the amount of religion that we could talk about in sessions, because one of the things that came up from the thesis was that Muslim psychologists that I interviewed were very fearful about being overheard in their sessions or colleagues hearing them in terms of how much religious content was in the sessions, because they felt that they wouldn't be allowed to have that amount of religious content in the sessions. Um, And so there is spoken or unspoken, a bit of a fear of if you're working as a psychologist in the NHS, how much religion should you be talking about in in a session? And, and, you know, and that's debated and and there's lots of different feelings about that. And there are some people that say absolutely none whatsoever. And some people that say absolutely as much as the client wants it to be and and everything in between. So I took this job as a chaplain to have complete freedom to be able to explore Islam to whatever extent the client wanted to in a therapeutic environment Mm -hmm. of our session. But instead, what I got was a huge number of referrals for jinn, evil eye, and black magic issues because I was the first Muslim uh, chaplain in that trust uh, that had ever been appointed. And I think the psychiatrists and the nurses were just like, oh, "We'll refer to the Muslim chaplain. The person thinks it's jinn or evil eye or black magic." And uh, you know, on one hand, it was it was quite nice that they thought that that would be a good thing to to you know, oh, as a Muslim psychologist, when this person thinks they have black magic, so I'll refer, you know it was quite nice. Uh, But on the other hand, I was not prepared for it. Um, I'd only really come across those things colloquially and from like family stories and a few family experiences, you know, it wasn't really something I knew very much about. But I then spent the following five years doing a lot of research on those issues, working with Iraqis, and really trying to you know look at this from an objective perspective what are we dealing with here is it black magic is it evil eye is it um jealousy and envy or is it mental health or you know and and that that culminated in uh, me developing a training an introductory training for nhs staff which i still run on gin evil eye and black magic and their impacts on mental health and essentially you know we nobody has the other than Allah. nobody has the answers we you, there isn't a definitive method of saying one or the other but what i found in secondary care mental health services so this is like the severe end of mental health services is that by the time you've reached that point it's either both or it's a, a very severe mental health issue you know because it didn't seem to matter how much Rukya was done, those people didn't really shift. Um, That does. That's not to say that there wasn't evil eye or black magic there, but there was a lot more than that there. Um, And there was often a lot of trauma and a lot of abuse and a lot. And that's not going to go with a few sessions of Rukya, you know, so. um, What I would always say is, you know, if you're having good Rukya, that's that's um, from the sunnah, then it's not going to do any harm go for it, you know, have some sessions. Um, But don't try and figure out it's not one or the other. You know, if you're feeling down, then you might need to talk to somebody about that. If you go for Rukya and it clears it, great. If it doesn't, that's not about the Rukya. You know, there is Shifa and healing in the Quran, but you might need something else as well. Um, So I just have a very middle path view of it all, really. I I don't understand this kind of it's got to be one or the other. Uh, everything's about gin nothing's about gin you know it's yeah. um, it's the extremes that 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 we go yeah. to and we, we do that in lots of different aspects of life and we certainly do it in this aspect but mm. you know the other thing I kind of found really over the years was that if you've been somebody that has been severely affected with with mental health you know severe depression or psychosis you're going to be vulnerable you're going to be vulnerable to anything that's out there really any kind of gin any kind of shaitan. If you're not washing properly, if you're not reading Athkar, if you're not able to read Athkar properly or pray or read Quran or wash properly, then then you are going to be susceptible to that kind of thing. So it's likely that if you if you've been in that prolonged state, you probably have a few things around you that are not very yeah. good. Um, and likewise, if somebody has done black magic to you. Uh, Or you've been very severely affected by evil eye in some way. That's probably going to lead to some depression and anxiety. Depending, you know, uh, you're gonna that's going to have an impact on your mental health as well as your body and and everything else. So, so again, the two things are very linked, and a holistic joint approach to treatment is 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 the way to go, really. I think.
0: Yeah, for sure. I really, really love the the examples that you've given, and actually, I think, um, you know, you're one of the first people to actually say that if you do if you have had a mental health problem like a very severe one and you you don't upkeep the the sunnah and uh you know what's what's been encouraged in islam then you will be susceptible and i think that in a nutshell also says that islam is very much a preventative religion as well you know things like self-ruqiyah reading Surat al-Baqarah, doing your evening and your morning adhqarah, like all of this is very much preventative. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I wanted to pick up on earlier on, on what you said about, you know, when someone's feeling low, you could very much need to speak to someone, but you could also, and if if Ruqiyah works for you, then great. And I think mm. it's really important to, you know, understand that, you um, The whispers of shaitan is one thing and feeling depression and having disturbing thoughts, um, not just sinful ones, but also ones about ending your life and self harming and things like that, like they're quite serious that sometimes shouldn't be just you know brushed away with oh this is waswasah I'll just mm. say bismillahir rahmanir rahim and if it goes away great mm. but if it doesn't then that is also the qadr of allah and I think that's a lot of thing that people forget is wherever you're feeling whatever your emotion you're having it is the qadr of allah and if bismillahir rahim or whatever doesn't take it away then this is a, literally a sign from allah to tell you you need to, you know you need to do something you, about it use yeah. the means that i yeah. have given you uh, yeah. to to get that help so you know I, I really love that that you said that um mashallah i don't don't think we've I'm, i've never actually heard anybody say that before so just uh, for that um, so um i wanted to just um ask about something that you mentioned earlier and i think this will be really helpful for a lot of the professionals that will be listening but also for myself as well um you know you mentioned that a lot of uh muslim psychologists they'll they'll often be a bit wary of you know can other people hear me what i'm saying in my room and is it too religious and is it allowed I mean, has that been an issue for you? How do you navigate that conversation? I know personally, for me, like I've worked in the NHS um, and I've had Muslim clients, and I've I've been a bit like, oh, I don't know, my roommate. What do I do? What do I not say? And you know, I've I've, like yourself, I've often had that conversation, um, you know, with my clients, and said, do you want to bring Islam into into this facility? And if you want, okay, great. And if you don't, then fine. But before that, you know, before I was, you know, as I was just making it into the field and stuff, I was very much like, I don't know if I want to have this conversation with my manager because, you know, I don't want to get prevent on my back or Mm. I don't want to come across as the extremist or I don't want to be brought into HR and, you know, all that, all those additional Mm. uh, worries Mm. that come with it. So, you know, you've been in the field for, mashallah, a long time. Um, How have you navigated that conversation? Has it ever been a concern for you? What, What would you advise?
1: As I've got older, I really just go with what my client says. In terms of taking it to supervision or not, that depends on my supervisor. And and yes, I will think about: is this a supervisor that I can take this information to or not? And if it isn't, I won't. And I will try and find someone where I can take that to that is a safe place. Um, But if it is, alhamdulillah, I've been blessed with some, some good supervisors. I've also had some terrible supervisors. Um, then then I will take that information to them. And, and we will explore that spiritually. Um, but that's come with confidence of knowing. My abilities with a, a lot of good supervision and reflective practice and what my, what my client wants, you know. If my client is very confident that they want an Islamic, um, you know, they they want to talk about Islam in these sessions, then then that makes my job easier because It's client-centered work, that's what I'm doing, it's client-focused work, and that's fine. I guess the challenge is when clients are not sure, when clients' faith is rocky, and and sometimes it will feel like they're coming to you as a spiritual guide, as a faith guide, as opposed to a therapist, and that that gets a bit blurry and that gets a bit difficult. Um, And also, but more importantly, and this is where I feel like the important work well, the, diff- the difficulty can really arise is when clients come and they are struggling with their faith. They're angry with Allah. They're angry with the Qadr of Allah. They, uh, you know, they have a lot of issues with their faith. And for me, you know, that that that's where I felt the need to start coming outside of the NHS then, because then it's quite difficult to do that. I felt, felt it was quite difficult to do that work within an NHS remit because You know, say for example, I was supposed to be seeing somebody for 20 sessions of psychotherapy. Um what was I going to do in my report at the end if we spent 20 sessions talking about their anger towards Allah and how to fix that from a from a religious perspective, not a psychological perspective. You know, because a lot of my clients who have been abused, although they're praying five times a day and they're practicing Muslims when we really get to it they are angry with Allah for what happened to them and you can understand that unfortunately that puts you in a really negative emotional and psychological state to be angry with Allah but that's where the work needs to be done so helping that client to understand that Allah is not to blame he's not a human being he's a creator he's you know it's it's almost going back to teaching them about who Allah really is and teaching them about what is the purpose of this life. That's what's going to help them to develop a new relationship, a different relationship with Allah, and try and understand their abuse and their trauma within the context of, you know, the bigger picture, but that's not psychotherapy. That's that's Islam. That's teaching Islam. And so that's difficult to do. I feel in the NHS, I could do it as a chaplain because I was employed to be working with their faith. But as a psychologist that would be more tricky i
0: I don't know if i've answered your question no no i think i think you have and i think um i i I think that's a discussion to be had like ongoing with with the people Mm. who create these models and create these services and you know maybe it needs to go higher into the policy makers and and Mm. those who who uh, govern society and, and govern services and things like that maybe you know onwards and upwards i always say i think it definitely needs to be these conversations need to be had at a, a higher level for sure so that it's um you know i th-
1: i think we're very 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 far away from that i yeah. think you know from an nhs perspective it, it is a secular organization it didn't start off as a secular organization the nhs started off with chaplains and priests and, mm. and that was very much part of the nhs but now it is a secular organization they are happy to talk about spirituality but not religion so if you frame things in terms of somebody's spiritual needs fine the minute you start talking about religious needs Mm. and religious then it's it's a whole different topic and you know i i mean i having worked as a chaplain and even now in my specialist role in the bme access service talking to staff teams and managers about religion it's we are very, very far away yeah. from from having a, a service that meets our needs in that sense, and 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 I do think that we need to start thinking about developing our own, not not as an either or, you know, yeah. it's still helpful, yeah. but but the NHS is nowhere near being able to incorporate it on that level mm.
0: um,
1: for any religion, not just for Islam, for any religion. Yeah, yeah. Um. So. Yeah, I think I think we need to start doing some of our own stuff.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and you know I think that's where a lot of you know people like Muslim Youth Helpline. Um, you've got uh, Professor Rashid Skinner. I think um his Ihsan counselling up north. Yourself with your courses in Spiritual Minds, of course. You know we provide counselling. Uh, all of our counsellors are BACP registered. Um, uh, you know, and maybe maybe like you said, it its, it's it's time to focus on these more because if you know if we can't 100 percent rely on the nhs of course we should go for all our our medical needs Mm etc and absolutely take advantage of the services they provide but i think it's important and you know unfortunately a lot of muslims who are struggling don't aren't aware of our services you know the things that you provide the things that inspiration minds does muslim youth helpline they're not aware of these people and you know i think half of our work is actually getting our message to to the people who need us isn't it so you know mm. I, I, like yeah like i said i think it's it's onwards and upwards inshallah and i think you know having the conversations that we are right now uh reaching out to one another and obviously our listeners who are viewing and listening and sharing you know we're all we all have a joint responsibility isn't it um mm. So, yeah, I think we're very much in our early days still, but I think mm. looking back ten years ago, would we really would we really mm. be having a podcast, a discussion about mental health and Islam? You know, I, I don't think so. So, mm. yeah, I think we're slowly uh, evolving, which actually brings me to my to my final question is all the years that you know you've you've been in the field and you you've been practicing etc. et cetera have you seen anything evolve and i know you said you obviously came from a family and a background that's very pro mental health and there isn't much stigma and stuff but in general in society have you seen like a shift in attitude have you seen a change like can we be optimistic for the future (laughs) (laughs) um or have you seen a decline you know yeah yeah Uh, with the rise of social media and children like mental health and children and stuff uh you know, either way, you can go either way.
1: <laughs> I th- I think the the fair answer is both, probably, um, in different in different areas. I, I I'm unfortunately acutely aware um, of I've experienced it and I've, I've I've lived it and I've seen it and and I've also you know read a lot of research on it. Um, but there's a huge amount of, of institutionalised racism within the NHS, um, and within other major you know organisations as well. And. The treatment of of BME um, clients in mental health services. Is a problem Um, and it's well documented and it's well researched Um, and, and it's been like that for decades. And unfortunately, the numbers are worse now than when they were in the 1970s and people who are fighting about it in the 1970s are still fighting about it now. And it's it's not any better. In fact, it's worse. If you're a black man who is experiencing psychosis, your experiences of of services will be horrendous. They will be absolutely horrendous and it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. So, you know, in in that sense, mental health services are not doing better um, in many aspects. In terms of Muslims and mental health, yes, there's been there's been a huge um, increase in awareness and increase in people saying I'm struggling with my mental health um, an increase in people's you know it never ceases to amaze me like we have all this stigma in our society and we have all these issues with reporting mental health but every day in mental health services there will be a muslim in services saying to their psychiatrist I have gin issues or I have black magic issues." you know there's, there's no problem with them saying it's really funny So, you know, there has definitely been an increase in Muslims being able to get more help and say that they want more help and say that they're struggling for whatever reason. I think for me, there there are two two perspectives that I come from and that are very important to me. One is, um, you know, mental health services generally. Do I agree with how general mental health services run? No. Do I think they work? No do I think we need to change mental health services and how they are? The, the I mean, the the national kind of, you know, um, standard treatment. Yes, I do. So so that is something that I feel very, very passionately about. And I'm involved in, in, in things to do with that. Um. And And what I've seen happen or what I'm seeing happen is that whilst Muslims are getting braver and getting, you know, bravery and expressing themselves and saying yes i'm struggling with my mental health they are seeing that 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 is the answer is medication and and the medical model and okay i'm ill so i have to go to hospital and it's being accepted because it's being seen as an illness as a medical illness um and so to me that doesn't give me very much hope because because i've read the research of decades of research that is telling us that the way that we are treating mental health does not work and we need to do something different. So to see Muslims gain an awareness and then go into that system is heartbreaking for me. I'm like, that's not going to work. It's going to cover. It's going to give you a plaster and it's going to make you feel a bit better, but it's not going to it's not going to solve what your problems are. And I'm not anti-medication, but I am anti-using medication as the only treatment in, in mental health. And is the primary and only treatment in mental health which is a lot of people's experiences so we are still missing the point if we if we get awareness raised um and then just go straight into medical systems and services and medication we are still missing the point that allah is trying to tell us which is there is something that you are struggling with that you need to deal with
0: absolutely um yeah i don't i don't know what i can add to that mashallah that was (laughs) very comprehensive um answer and you know like like you i I really love what you mentioned about you know despite um you know not agreeing with um how mental health services are run and whether you think they work or not. And yeah, you want to see that change. But you know, you're actively doing things to see that change. You know, you're not someone that's just gonna sit on the sofa and be like, okay, well I've said I don't agree with it and that's it. That's all I can that's all I can do. And I think, you know, that very much, you know, and I think the hadith of, you know, tying your camel and relying um your trust in Allah. It uh, can literally apply to every single mm. imagine uh, a, a scenario you can you can imagine, um, and I think I go back to a point which I said earlier is it's everybody's responsibility. Whether you're a professional, mm. whether you're somebody who's not even remotely interested in mental health, it, at the end of the day, it's about providing for your community, providing for others. And Islam is very much a collectivist religion. It's all about the community. It's all about the jamaat, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, mashallah, um, I know I said that this was my final question, but this is actually my final <laughs> question. It's okay. I, I can't let you go, Doctor. <laughs> um, um, I think it would be really, really nice. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that we've discussed today has been very much about people accessing uh, services and um, working uh, with people who have uh, who struggle with mental health. What would your advice be? to my question is kind of twofold what would your advice be to somebody who wants to access help but is very worried that their uh islam wouldn't be catered for how would they have that conversation you know a lot of people aren't lucky enough unfortunately to have access to muslim professionals and muslim psychologists like yourself in in national services um what would your advice be how would you go about having that conversation with, with with a psychologist or a counselor
1: it's a good question um i mean one of the other things that came out from my research was that you didn't necessarily have to have a muslim therapist in order to have a good therapeutic journey and for that to be helpful um what you needed was somebody who either had a faith so they could understand faith and having a faith or that somebody that was very respectful of your faith and who would be very um aware of it in sessions and would be asking about it in sessions and things Um, because there were pros and cons of having a, a therapist of the same faith as you so let's start with the cons you know some of the cons were um and i've experienced this myself you know i find it easier to be curious which is a very important skill of a therapist with somebody who is from a different background to me whereas if i was sitting with a sunni muslim and they had a very different view about something in in our faith that we shared, and I held a completely opposite view, and I felt that their view was really hindering them and was adding to their mental health, I would really struggle to be curious. I would really struggle to remove that part of myself from those conversations. So there are advantages and disadvantages of having somebody from the same faith as you. In fact, you know, in one of the the people that I interviewed, that was a really big issue. You know, there was a um, a woman who was a Muslim therapist and uh, her client was a niqabi who wouldn't take her niqab off even when she was in the session on her own with the female therapist. And the therapist really struggled with that. She really struggled with that. She was like, I don't understand why you can't take your niqab off. Like, there's no religious reason why you need to have your niqab on right now. So. And and that really was a block in the therapy. I know it sounds, you know, but it really was a block because for the therapist it represented some kind of trust issue, and maybe it was some kind of trust issue. Who knows? Um, and actually, that journey didn't work out, and the the Niqabi woman ended up having therapy with a non-Muslim, and it was a really good therapy journey. Um, so, I don't fundamentally believe that your therapist needs to be Muslim in order for you to have a good therapeutic journey, but It needs to be respected. It needs to be able to be part of the sessions. So I always recommend to clients to look for qualifications over faith, actually, and You know, we it's not a protected title, so people can do very, very little training and call themselves counselors or therapists. And it is something that that concerns me. And I've met lots of people who, including myself, who've had terrible experiences in therapy, really bad experiences in therapy that are damaging and that put people off from having proper therapy. And it comes down to training, comes down to supervision, reflective practice, all of those things. So for me, my primary, primary advice is to check qualifications and to make sure that somebody is a registered and, and really qualified, properly qualified therapist. Then think about the spirituality. And, and I always recommend people to book initial sessions with at least three to four more if they want therapists um, to have initial sessions with them, primarily because lots of people don't have um, uh any space so you know often it can take three or four contacts with people to find somebody who's free but also you do need to shop for a therapist you know the research shows that it's the therapeutic relationship that's going to be the the best indicator of, of your outcome of therapy you have to get on with your therapist you have to uh feel a connection to them and you can find that out from the first session so by booking you know initial sessions with a number of therapists then going with the person that you feel most comfortable with and in that initial session saying to them i'm a muslim how do you feel about that how do you feel about us talking about that in sessions you will know from the answer of that person whether they will be comfortable with doing that or not and if it's a muslim alhamdulillah you know the research showed that if it was a good therapeutic relationship uh, and it was the same faith then you could have a a really extraordinary therapeutic journey. That was something slightly above a normal brilliant therapeutic journey. So uh, the way that one of my clients described it was like um, an added dance. You know, it was like when therapy works really well, you're moving together and you're in sync and it's and it's going. But but if therapy is going really well, the relationship's good and you're both Muslim and you've you've incorporated that and connected. It's just like this amazing, fantastic thing that can happen. I think that's quite rare, unfortunately. But good therapy is good enough. It doesn't need to be that amazing Islamic experience. Good therapy can get you over your your um or certainly get you a good way through any of the problems or difficulties that you're facing. But the therapy you have to get on with the therapist and they have to be able to be absolutely fine with with thinking about faith and incorporating God and religion into therapy.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I'm I mean, I, I hope that whoever is listening that it helps to manage their expectations of of Islam and therapy and religion and therapy because I know from personal encounters and speaking with friends and family and clients as well, it's like, you know, they have to have find somebody who's like the, you know, there's this haram halal ratio that a lot of the young people right. talk about. <laughs> <nowadays>. <laughs> okay, I've heard this one. Um, um, and you know, a lot of people like often say, oh, I want to find a therapist who, you know, it's on the same level with me in terms of deen, like, you know, they're practicing and but they won't encourage me to practice more than what I am, but also I don't want my therapist to be less practicing than me because then they won't understand and it's just like, you know, <laughs> uh, it's like how much can you ask from somebody? You know, it's like this person is not God. So you can't expect that perfect relationship because the only person, the only existence you're gonna get that perfect relationship with is is Allah essentially. Um, and ultimately, Allah is your greatest counselor, and you know the yeah. the Sunnah of Rasulullah is your is your guidance, is is your manuscript. Um, yeah. So if anything else um, that you find in creation in this life is going to fall below that anyway. And I think it's yeah. really important to manage those expectations. And I think you you know you absolutely smashed that one and when you said like it's just an added added dance i love how you mentioned dance as well i'm just trying to <laughs> yeah that's <was> totally haram <laughs> <wasn't> <laughs>
1: have to think of another no, no, uh, i think example. i was just
0: imagining you know some saying with one of my <laughs> <biggest> counselors. <laughs> but i actually got what you mean you know yeah. as somebody who has gone through counseling it makes sense and i'm sure it will make sense to a lot of our viewers and to all our viewers who are yet to get counseling You'll think about this woman and you were like, "That's what Doctor meant when she said dancing." So, Mashallah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that brings us to to the end of, of our podcast. I've really, really enjoyed it. Mashallah, uh, for your for your time and and you know your your wisdom and um, your your guidance Ubarak and your laughing. advice. Um, where can our viewers find out more about your work? You know, you mentioned a course. Do you have a website? Are you on social media? Where can we find out more about you?
1: <laughs> I've been a bit invisible to be honest. Um, <laughs> and just kind of plodding along with my with my work. The plan the plan is inshallah to have a website know, in the next couple of months and um and inshallah they can they can find me there soon but at the moment i'm still a little bit invisible
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. well inshallah as soon as you have that website up let us know and we'll inshallah. get it um, linked uh, to to our um web, to the webpage you find this on or in the youtube description link and things like that um, Inshallah. But yeah, honestly, it's been really, really beneficial. I myself inshallah. have learned so much. Um and I'm you know, I'm sure our viewers and our listeners have as well. So inshallah. Inshallah khair, uh, for your attendance and uh um, uh say my salam. So as salamu alaykum, wa raftallahi wa, wa, wa barakatuh
1: Thank you for having me
0: for listening i hope that you have found it beneficial and massively insightful um, and are able to take away the pearls of wisdom and guidance and knowledge that dr sarah better has provided us all with today please do share it please do give us a review please do subscribe if you haven't and please do give us your feedback let us know how you found it let us know what you guys want to see in the future let us know if the content that we're creating is what you guys want we are here to serve you so inshallah please let us know if we're on the right tracks if you want to suggest guests for the future please do let us know if you want to be a guest in the future if you have a personal story to tell or if you feel like you want something to discuss on our platform let us know we are looking for guests inshallah um so please please do email us at info at finally we are on patreon so please do check us out we we need um funds and resources in order to continue to be you know a sustainable source of knowledge and advice and support for for our ummah inshallah and we need your help in order to to help you essentially so khairan for for listening i pray that you guys have found it beneficial and until next time rahmatullahi wa barakatuh